morning. Dial that down just a hair if you wouldn't mind. Well, good Sunday morning, everybody. My name is Ryan Roper. Uh, first time doing this and first time with a microphone, and it is going to warp my mind. Uh, so just be patient with me. It's the first time I've uh, been in this kind of a format, this big of a room, uh, with a microphone that makes me feel like I'm in the Secret Service. Uh, so thanks for very much. Uh, let's get started by praying. Uh, thanks for being here, and um, we will get started. Father in heaven, uh, you are holy and your word is holy, and thank you for bringing us here on your day to study your word. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Father, please be with us as we open your word, that we see just how deep it is and how much you love us by giving it to us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ryan Roper. I'm an Air Force officer. We've been here for just shy of a year. Uh, and uh, today we're going to start a four-week series on the Psalms. Uh, this one, uh, this, is this beginning episode here, as it were, is going to be, I'm going to warn you, a little bit of an information overload. And I may very well have way more information than I have time to get it out. If that's the case, you're going to see me start rapid firing all the way through, all the way to the end. But it's kind of the point. So if you kind of hang on with me just for that, uh, with that wild ride, uh, hopefully it kind of makes sense and I'll draw it to a, a close at the end. Uh, if there are questions, if we have time, we'll absolutely have uh, time for that one. Uh, and then we'll go from there. So why the Psalms? Uh, well, personally, uh, I've kind of had a bit of a personal interest in the Psalms. So when I grew up, it really wasn't an emphasis item. It was a part of scripture. Everybody acknowledged that the Psalms were very important. Uh, we were discussing up here a little earlier, the first psalm we learned was the 23rd psalm. My grandparents taught me that when I was a child, um, so near and dear to my heart. And then your other exposure to the psalms where I grew up was in one of these. Right, this is the New Testament. It has the psalms and the Proverbs in the back. And you're like, why? And you're like, oh, I don't know. They're kind of important. And that was really the end of it. Um, the other thing is you kind of had a little bit of exposure in, in music because you'd sing, As the Deer Panteth for the Water, which is in Psalm 42. But I didn't know it was in Psalm 42 until much later. Uh, so, you know, flash forward a couple of years, and, or many, many years, I should say, until Annie and I got married. Uh, when we got married, uh, we kind of were getting ready to go to sleep, and she's, well, we're going to read a psalm together, right? I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> well, where are we? Well, okay, I left off before we got married here. It's in the middle of book two. I'm like, book what? So I didn't even know those things were a thing, which is kind of interesting. Uh, you know, and then we start listening to kind of books together. We listen to a book by uh, Rosaria Butterfield called The Confessions of an Unlikely Convert, where she's coming out of a homosexual lifestyle into a reformed lifestyle. It was a radical change. Uh, and she starts talking about needing something to do, and they sing the psalms in that denomination. Uh, and she starts talking about just how important that is or had been. I'm like, well, that's interesting. Maybe I should do that. So I adopted a Bible reading plan that had the Psalms in it where you'd read a Psalm every day. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. The next, very next year, I just, okay, well, I'm going to leave that off. And about halfway through the year, I thought, well, gee, it, I kind of missed that. Uh, and so I started doing that again and again. And then I thought, well, it'd be interesting to keep memorizing these, these things. How do people memorize this? Well, you sing them. And so I started looking for music to put these things to, and I found a, a group that I really like. I'll play a song for you in a little bit. It's called The Corner Room, and they put the full text of the ESV psalm to music. 
and there's three albums of those, and you're going to see me visit some of those because they are now stuck in the mind, which is very good. And then uh, my last assignment had a really rough time. Bottom line with that is I needed them. And God in his providence in the middle of that assignment, right there with the reading plan that I was on, met me in the Psalms when I needed encouragement from the Word of God the most. And so it's sort of a personal interest item for me, and who am I? I'm just a guy in the church that has been helped by the Word of God, and I hope to relate that here. Uh, and so with that, let's get going. Uh, you're going to see on your handout, uh, I'm going to use the PowerPoint just to kind of show some pictures, the majority of the outlines there on the, uh, on the handout that you have in your hands. Uh, and so off we go. I'll just uh, start out, like, what's our modern relationship to the Psalter or the Psalms? In Hebrew, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I'm told that in Hebrew, the word the Psalms is, stands for the praises. So it's the book of praises. Do we think about it that way? Does our modern evangelical moment think about it that way? Um, is, it, is it high or low priority? Well, based on my upbringing, it was my assessment, it was a low priority. I was in a lot of non-denominational churches before I finally settled in the Presbyterian Church of America. Uh, and it, I can tell you from that experience, it was a low priority, not because it wasn't important or a part of the Word of God, it just was seen as liturgical, it was seen as old, um, and so it wasn't used very often. There are other, uh, so you're going to also hear me use, and it's cited in the uh, on the notes there at the bottom, um, a lot of this is going to be drawn from a book called Learning to Love the Psalms by Dr. W. Robert Godfrey. He has a couple of thoughts, so why don't we use uh, the Psalms today? His five thoughts are these. There is a the smaller or a lesser emphasis in use of the King James Bible. So for example, you get a lot of kind of versification. It's a lot easier to memorize. It's sort of the language of Shakespeare, you know, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That kind of sticks in the mind a little bit. Whereas in modern English translations, it doesn't kind of come off that easily. So that's one of his hypotheses there. Uh, also, um, this, the number two is the Psalms. Um, there's less overall personal study of them. Um, like I said, I didn't even know those were a thing. When I see that, it's just poetry, and that's kind of neat. But there's a lot of depth there, which I hope to kind of capture and relate here in the next uh, 45 minutes. Third, the Psalms are hard. You've got a lot of imagery in the Psalms, a lot of Hebrew poetic form that we're just not used to. Um, things you just haven't had the education for. We just haven't had the opportunity to really study and break in there. And if, if it's difficult, sometimes you just pass it by. If that's the case, well, what's there? Well, you know, for example, if you take a look at Psalm 22, you see images like bulls of Bashan, that, that they're kind of against David, and he uses that as, a, uh, as an image. What is that? We don't have really uh, a, a modern understanding of what the strong bulls of Bashan really were. Um, so you kind of have to go back into your own biblical history, and you find it in Numbers 21 and Deuteronomy chapter 1 of what happened in and around Bashan. And coming out of the Exodus, the Israelites encountered Og and um, Sihon, Og king of Bashan and Sihon king of the Amorites, and they were opposed and they had a military conflict between them. And so to, uh, you have to understand that context as well. So working through these difficulties kind of gets us plugged into the whole Bible. Um, but the songs are very diffi uh, difficult. Also, th um, the speaker changes quite a bit. Sometimes it's I, sometimes it's we, sometimes who is the, who is the I? Is it Israel I? Is it the church I? Is it David? Is it Jesus? Sometimes it's just difficult to see that. Uh, and so we, we just go, well, that's tough. I'm going to move on. And uh, what we hope to do is encourage, that, um, encourage us to actually take time and think that through because there's a personal benefit there. 
because this is the word of God. Lastly, um, number five, uh, or I'm sorry, number four, the scholarly literature is kind of difficult to read. Um, I've, uh, in preparation for this class, was uh, uh, reading through Godfrey, which is actually really accessible. Uh, a couple of others, and you see that the language really is kind of technical, um, particularly when you're looking at Spurgeon and Calvin. You do have to spend some time looking at that. It's difficult. Um, so accessible resources to open these things to us are only now coming out because we're starting to see the importance of them. Lack, the lastly, lack of understanding of the Psalter's arrangement, that there's, it's put together in a series of books. There's five of them. We're going to spend some time on what those are, what they mean, and how they are arranged. And there's a progression between the start in book one, I, I learned that there's books, thanks to my wife, all the way to book five, and it points ultimately to the coming of Jesus Christ and the consummation of all history at the end of time, which is kind of neat. But we don't understand that that is a thing and that it is really important and kind of revolutionary to see that once it starts opening up and we can kind of see that this has a applicability to us in particular and it points us to Jesus himself, uh, it starts to unfold and it gets a lot more exciting to look at. So let's kind of dive in. Uh, first of all, we're going to spend a little bit of time on the arrangement of the books of the Psalter, that each book has its own prevailing theme, uh, and that it eventually will point and go in a direction all the way to book number five. Five books total. There's one overall theme in the Psalter, uh, and it is roughly, uh, um, Godfrey kind of condenses it down to Calvin's theme, which is the providence of God. He'll expand on that a little bit, and he'll say it's also God's goodness and unfailing love for the righteous. You know, who's the righteous? Is it us? Is it Christ? It's both because we, in the New Testament sense, are inheriting or have conferred upon us the righteousness of Christ. And that is the overall theme of the book. Uh, how does that work? So Calvin says this, the Psalms are replete with all precepts which serve to frame our life to every part of holiness, piety, and righteousness. Yet, they will principally teach and train us to bear the cross. At the bearing of the cross is a genuine proof of our obedience, since by doing this, we renounce the guidance of our own affections and submit ourselves entirely to God, leaving Him to govern us and to dispose of our life according to His will so that the afflictions which are the bitterest and most severe to our nature become sweet to us because they proceed from him. We'll get into where some of those things are described in just a bit. But that is the overall theme of the book. You're going to see yourself in there. You're going to see Jesus in there. Uh, and you're going to be able to be pointed to a holy God at the very end and throughout. Like I said, five books. First book, number one. There's, uh, it's Psalms 1 through 41. Overall themes, the king's confidence in God's care. You're going to find a lot of those things are mostly, um, uh, well, I'll get to that in a second. I'm just going to list these all out and we'll dive in book by book. Book 2, the king's commitment to God's kingdom. That's Psalm 42 to 72. Book 3, the king's crisis over God's promises. That's 73 to 89. Book 4, the king's comfort in God's faithfulness. Psalm 90 to 106. And then book five, uh, the king's celebration of God's salvation, Psalm 107 to 150. Those are prevailing themes. Most of those things you're going to see variations throughout the whole thing. And that's okay, but you're going to see a prevailing theme throughout that whole deal. And I'm going to kind of highlight that with a particular set of texts. Um, 
Book one, driving right there, uh, right into it. The king's confidence in God's care. 41 Psalms, 34 of those 41 are from David. Main, many of these things are in the context of persecution and suffering, but you're going to see a tagline at the end of each one of those psalms that says, you know, yet God is my refuge and strength. As an example, we'll take a look at Psalm 3. If you could turn there, I'll, I'll read it otherwise. This is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And a brief aside, those titles are actually in the ancient Hebrew text. So you can treat those titles not uh, like if you have an ESV Bible above the three, it says, save me, O God. That's just to cue your eyes. But the actual title of the psalm, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, all the sea laws that you're going to see to the right column, you can treat that as inspired text because that is in the, uh, the ancient Hebrew manuscripts, the oldest ones we actually have on hand. So what does it say? It says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You will break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on all your people. What you're seeing in there is a good representation of what you're going to see in the entire book, which is it's in the first person. Most of them are the Psalms of David. Most of them are saying, I'm having a tough time here, yet you are my strength and you are my shield. You save me, oh my God. Keep that in mind because it almost seems like imperative language that the writer is saying to God. That's important for next week. Uh, think about the audacity of actually saying that. You, God, save me. Wow. And the fact that inspired text of scripture is actually giving us words like that to say with which we can relate to God is actually fantastic. Um, brief overview of book one, but that's kind of what you can expect to see. Moving on to book two, the king's commitment to God's kingdom. Uh, all Psalms but one, and that'd be Psalm 49, every single Psalm in book two will mention the king or make reference to the king or be for the king's personal use. Uh, as far as like at invoking blessings upon himself. Um, and it's, uh, even though there are fewer of David, it's thought some of the scholarship on this is saying that it's written in David's time by either the sons of Korah or, the son or, uh, or Asaph, the other two main authors of the Psalter, um, in order for the king to use in public worship. Um, much more of these are actually collective rather than individual in nature. Um, and um, what you can also see here is, if I can find my place, um, how is it that we can see ourselves in these things is that the king is representative of the nation, and so that is how everybody is seeing themselves in there. We in an American context are, are thinking of ourselves more as individuals, but in that context, it's much more collective. So it is the nation and the king as a representative of the nation, and that's to sound a little bit familiar, right? The, our king, Jesus Christ, is our representative for us in front of God the Father. Um, so how the Old Testament is also one of the other reasons or examples of how the Old Testament points to the new. One of your main examples here is take a look at Psalms 42 and 43. These are not written by David. These are written by the sons of Korah. We're going to talk about them either in week three or week four. 
I'm going to ov- just overview this song. So just like a uh, psalm, like, like I said before, this, how did I inc- uh, encounter this? Is right here, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. How these are both meant to be taken together. Because you can see in verse 11 of Psalm 42, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. How does Psalm 43 end? The exact same way. Psalm 43 is not authored and titled. Psalm 42 is. So it is very likely that those two are supposed to be taken together, and there's a lot more of that where psalms are meant to be taken together as we start going down the rabbit hole about how these things are actually grouped. Uh, If you take a look at this whole thing, you're seeing that, um, you know, things like where... When shall I come and uh, bef- uh, appear before God? Vindicate me, O God, defend my cause. Um, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. This is the king's commitment to God's kingdom and then God's ultimate salvation of that kingdom. Moving on to book three. Psalm, uh, Psalms books one and two are kind of a very, um, even though there's a lot of persecution and pr- in a context of persecution, most of these Psalms end on positive notes. So they're very encouraging. It's, I'm having a tough time, but you, O Lord, you are the one who is going to save me. You will, you have, and that's how it goes. Book three is a bit of a downer. Title of book three or the overall book, uh, um, the overall context of book three or theme is the king's crisis over God's promises. There are only 17 of these Psalms, only one of which is attributed to David. Um, Think of this as a crisis of faith for the entire kingdom and you think about the context that this is, in the, this is actually in, um, some of these or many of these are written in the context of the impending and or actual exile of Israel. If we recall, Judah or Israel had been exiled by the Assyrians. A few generations later, Judah was exiled by the Babylonians. Why? It's because the ultimate unfaithfulness of both people groups and God is going to cut the tree off, preserve the stump, and the remnants go into Babylon, and then we'll come back 70 years later. Imagine what you would feel like if you are a faithful practitioner of the Jewish faith at that point in time, and you're like, why is this happening? What's going on? As you're asking that question, that might be a real crisis of faith that is cataloged in book three. If you take a look at Psalm 73, verses one through three, and then into 74, verses one through three, and there's a couple of verses we're gonna take a look at in 73. This is the very beginning of book three. This is Asaph writing, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It has a turn, so if you look at the end of it in verses 23 and 25, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Who who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's more of an individually focused one. Turn the page over to Psalm 74, verses 1 through 3. Asaph writes again, O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which, uh, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. If you read at the, uh, the end of um, 2 Samuel, 
what the Babylonians do when they come in there. They come into the holy place and the most holy place, and they take everything out of there. Nobody could go in there for fear of death. Like, God would strike people down if they went there on, in an unholy manner. And here comes the enemies of God, pagans, walking right into that sanctuary and desecrating it and stealing all the treasure. What do you think you would think of if that was happening? It would be as if somebody came into this church and just wrecked everything and then elevate that like two to ten times worse. What are you going to do, right? This is now, um, this is uh, inspired scripture that is capturing these thoughts and emotions for us to take a look at and then for us to appropriate today when we're in the same tough times. Book three ends with Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verses 49 through 52. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever, amen and amen. This is a reminder of God's past faithfulness, but they're kind of looking to the future at this point going, is this really going to hold? Is God going to keep his promises here? What are we going to do? It's as if book three ends on an open question, right? What is going to happen? But we in history are able to kind of look through the whole picture and take a look at now the beginning of book four. So book four, your main theme is the king's comfort in God's faithfulness. So the open question that's left, that we're left with at the end of book three is answered at the very beginning of book four. Take a look at um, Psalm 90. This is not, uh, this isn't David, Asaph, or the sons of Korah. This is Moses, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Turn the page to Psalm 91, verses 1 and 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This answers the open question that we were left with at the end of book three. Can I trust God? Yes, of course. He created, he redeems, he comforts those who are his. And this points us forward even further to the coming of Jesus, who is our comfort and our consolation. What's going on here? We are brought through, we're optimistic, then we're brought through some serious despair. We're given hope, and then in book five, at the very end, um, we're going to be comforted, which will point us toward the, even the second coming of Christ. On to book five, the king's celebration of God's salvation. This is Psalms 107 to 150. This is the longest book in the entire Psalter, and it's kind of a crescendo as you go from the beginning all the way to the end. Gradually increasing praise. Take comfort, it starts on kind of a low note, and then praise God. If you take a look at Psalm 150, um, it says things like this. It's loud praise. You're hearing things like crashing cymbals, loud instruments. That's the end of the Psalter. Uh, and then it ends the entire book with amen and amen which is pretty cool. So five books that kind of have their own individual theme with the overall theme of God's love and care for his righteous people or his righteous one who is Jesus Christ. Uh, okay, on it a little more. So that's big picture. Now we're gonna drill down and I'm gonna go as deep as I possibly can in the time that I have remaining uh, just to kind of whet our appetites of just how deep this stuff really goes. 
So um, on into the second uh, portion here where we're talking about now poetic forms. These things are also, what are they? They're songs, they're poems. Um, we're kind of used to, you know, what's our exposure to poetry today? Who reads poetry, anybody? When's the last time we read poetry? Probably high school, maybe Shakespeare. I got some Shakespeare in a second, it'd be kind of cool. What's that? Fair enough, Walt Whitman or you know, something like that. So our main exposure to poetic anything today is probably music, which is fine. Um, there's a little bit of that in a second. But English poetry, probably your most famous English poet would be William Shakespeare. Come on now. You can do it. There we go. Hopefully you can see that. I, uh, I sent this in there and then, ooh, uh, and then Shemaine told me that it had to be 36 point font or bigger. I'm like, oh, whoops, uh, I'll, have, I'll figure that one out later. So Shakespeare wrote uh, predominantly in this form called iambic pentameter. Hey, why am I taking us back to high school English class for a second? Here's why, because we actually have to have our own context before we start thinking about what it looks like in Hebrew. Like we don't speak Hebrew, I'm gonna make a bit of a relation here. Shakespeare wrote this thing called iambic pentameter. Think about how difficult that would be. You're not just writing prose, you're writing poetry, and each of your lines of poetry have to be five segments long, and each of those segments have two syllables, and those syllables are kind of, you can see that, that's like a U and a dash, it's da-da, 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 da-da. That's how it works. Come on, you can do it. There we go, all right. So you take a look at that line there, that's from Hamlet. That's to be or not to be, that is the question, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortunes. And by the way, I didn't study that before I came in here. I, I remembered that all the way from high school. Why? Because it was rhythmic. Here's your rhythm, to be or not to be. That is the question, right? That's two syllables question, but Shakespeare is sort of like infamous for cramming words into his own form just to make it easier on himself. Psalms do that too, by the way. I'm gonna stop pointing at it because then it'll stop flashing at me. <laughs> cool, there we go. So you kind of see that, that's, that's a bit of a form and why do I remember that so well? Like I said, it's because it's rhythmic. Um, so the Psalms are very similar. It's to start at the very basic level, you've got, here's the Psalm 19, hopefully you, you can actually see that, but if you can look it up in your Bibles, it'd be a lot bigger to, easier to see. That's called a line, profound, right? Multiple lines are called a colon and plural are cola, if that makes sense. And you can see this is right here is how it's shown on a single column presentation in your modern English Bible. That is a bicolon. So two of those things are meant to be taken together. We will usually group that together as a verse. So that's verse two of Psalm 19. Uh, and that, those two things are meant to be taken together uh, because that's the way the Hebrew poetry flows. All of that together is called a strophe or a strophe or something like that. The Hebrew scholars can please come correct me when we're done. In general, that's how it's uh, set up. Sometimes you can see verse six up there, there's three cola in that, uh, that little structure. That's called a tricolon. Um, and so that's how they're gonna set up their modern verse or their verse. That's how we depict those things that are actually in the Hebrew in your modern English Bible. Uh, I'll get to that in a second. 
So also, unlike Hebrew poetry, what you're going to see is oftentimes, if you uh, thumb over to Psalm 23, in English poetry, your big bang payoff is at the end. So we start at the beginning of your poem, and you build imagery all the way to the end of the poem, and you go, bam, there's your meaning. See what I did there? Not so in Hebrew poetry. In Hebrew poetry, the meaning is actually in the middle. So if you take a look at Psalm 23, the, right, the very middle of the, ver of the entire psalm is, for you are with me. In his book on the Psalms, uh, Dr. Godfrey takes every single verse and interleaves that in there. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, for you are with me. He makes me lie down in green pastures, for you are with me. He leads me beside still waters, for you are with me. You get the idea. That shows you just how that's the central meaning of that entire uh, psalm is right there in the middle. That is a device used in Hebrew poetry uh, in order to convey the meaning. So if, as you're looking at your psalms, what's the meaning? What am I actually looking at? Sometimes you look right in the middle, and that'll tell you exactly what the main central theme of that psalm is. Now turn back now to Psalm 21. We're going to talk about this other concept called a chiasm or a chiasm. Think of the letter chi, that's an X, right? And if you think of the bottom part of a letter X, you see a triangle there. And this tells you just how you're organizing or one of the ways they organize Psalms in Psalm 21 is organized as one of these chiasms. Here's the point. Verse 7 in Psalm 21, which says, For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. That is the central theme of the entire psalm. And if you look at the pyramid there, you've got corresponding meetings on either side. So it builds from the first part of verse 1 all the way to verse 7 as the central meaning, and then it kind of debuilds all the way down where now verse 1 corresponds to, the first part of verse 1 corresponds to verse 13. The, uh, the second half of verse 1 into verse 2 corresponds to verse 12. Sometimes it is not a direct comparison. So for, for example here, here's how it's saying this. O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices. Now let's take a look at verse 13. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Verse 1b into 2. O Lord, uh, or I'm sorry, and in your salvation, how greatly exalts you have given him his heart's desire. Verse 12, for you will put them, the enemies, to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. How does that correspond? The question posed in verse 1b, how is God going to bless and answer the king, is answered in verse 12. You will put them, the enemies, to flight, and you will aim at their faces with your bows. So it see, you kind of see, if we read that from top to bottom, we wouldn't necessarily get that whole structure as it builds to the central theme, and then it kind of comes back down with those corresponding verses answering the questions posed on the left side of the pyramid. Does that kind of make sense? Are every single one of these like this? No. Is it difficult to kind of do this if you're not a Hebrew scholar? Yes. I will grant I stole this from Dr. Godfrey, um, and I, even the diagram, so credit where credit's due. But you kind of see, if you didn't know this was a thing, it would be very difficult to understand what's going on. Uh, other ways you're going to try to take a look at these things are uh, an acrostic. So um, other forms you're going to find psalms are an acrostic. The most famous one of all of them is Psalm 119. If you turn over to that, you're going to see each of those individual strophes start with a Hebrew character. 
and it's always kind of thought that, hey, the whole thing, that whole strophe just started with that Hebrew character and then on down, and then the next one on the next one, and that just goes through the Hebrew alphabet. Guess what? It's even more than that because every single line in that entire strophe starts with that character. Think about how difficult that would be to write. So you have a stanza of poetry that has to conform to some sort of meter, and every line has to start with A. And the next one, every line has to start with B. You get the idea. So you start to see just how much, um, how difficult these things must have been to write, and just how much complexity there is here. And the Bible, this isn't secret code. This is just the Hebrew language. And we don't speak Hebrew, so we just don't see that. So nothing bad on us, it's just we haven't seen it before. So it's okay, but if we don't know it's there, we don't know just how cool this is that we've been given this as a gift from God. There are other acrostics too, but that was probably your most, uh, most famous one because you actually see that in Psalm 119 is the longest Psalm, so um, use that as a really good example. Let's drill down even further. Uh, so there's also sub-organizations in all of the books themselves, and so there's different structures of psalms that are meant to be taken together. So for example, if you take a look at book two, all, whoops, uh, all of book two is a chiasm. Wow! So the central point uh, or central meaning in book two, Psalms 51 to 64, the king's commitment to God's kingdom, is the main theme of the middle psalms of that book. That's Psalms 51 to 64, and you've got to build up 42 to 44, main theme, the longing for the king and the, uh, and the people for God's blessing. Then Psalms 45 to 48, the success of God. Same thing, the same theme for Psalms 65 through 68 and then 69 through 72. How many people knew that was there? I didn't. That's kind of cool. But it, it goes even further down the rabbit hole. Um, if you look now at uh, other groupings uh, to be had, if you look at Psalms 19 through 26, it's there on your outline. Um, you've got a sort of creation, fall, redemption, crucifixion, resurrection, Pentecost, and then final consummation of history theme between Psalms 19 through 26. Psalm 19, you know, the heavens declare the glory, the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. There's creation. Psalm 20 is, uh, typifies the coming of the Messiah. Psalm 21, the triumphal entry. Psalm 22 is a crucifixion nar narrative. Like Psalm 22, um, they cast lots from my clothing and things like that, but the, it's a picture of the crucifixion in Psalm 22. I'm starting to run uh, short on time, so you're going to hear my voice kind of pick up just a little bit. Sorry about that. Uh, the weird thing about Psalm 23 is Psalm 23, a resurrection narrative. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so you can kind of see that it could be a resurrection-themed psalm as you come back um, on the backside of that psalm. Psalm 24, it, uh, is, uh, um, it's thought to be that's a, um, a forecast of Jesus' ascension into heaven. So if you look at Psalm 24, you get uh, this kind of a narrative. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. So as Christ is ascending into heaven and uh, taking his seat at the right hand of God, it could be that those things would be said of him. So kind of cool. Psalm 25, a Pentecost narrative, and then Psalm 26, uh, pictures of the final judgment. So things like, in, vindicate me, O Lord, for I've walked in integrity and I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. 
for your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. So not necessarily like, you know, judgment on the wicked because it's in there if you look for it, but also the vindication of the righteous at the end of history. Going even further, so if we go down to book five, there's seven groups of psalms in book five. Um, so Psalms 107 to 112, praise for the king's importance and God's um, redemptive plan for Israel. Psalms 113 to 118, deliverance from Egypt. All those things are themed for deliverance from Egypt. No, by the way, it's thought that at the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples sang Psalm 118 together. Kind of cool. Psalms 120 to 134, Psalms of Ascent. Um, those are a group together of what's thought of people singing these things as they walk up for Passover up to the temple, uh, up from the lowlands of Israel up to the um, uh, Jerusalem city on the hill. Psalm 135 to 137, um, the reality of enemies of God's people. So even in the book of praise, we're talking about, hey, we're praising in the midst of our enemies. Psalm 138 to 145, they're all psalms of David. So it is a projection of a restoration of the Davidic kingdom. Psalm 146 to 150 is the end of the Psalter, and we were thinking about it as perfections of the praise of God. More on that in a second. Each individual book ends with a statement of praise. Book one, Psalm 41. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Book two, blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Everybody seeing a theme here? Book three, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Book four, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say amen, praise the Lord. Book five, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. That's Psalm 150. That's a lot. Right? And we didn't even scratch, we didn't even barely scratch the surface because you can talk about metaphor and similes and uh, all sorts of other imagery and prophetic imagery in the Psalms. And I'm just trying to do a little bit of an information overload just to show everybody just how deep the rabbit hole goes and what God has prevented or presented to us or given to us as a gift in order to pray these things back to him, to sing, to be encouraged by these things, to know that Christ has come and they are for our good. Every single level of the Psalter is given there perfectly so to convey meaning, all of it. So you've got that from the very understandable words, like it's our doctrine that when you read scripture, the things that God wants us to know pop off, to, pop off the page by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. But as you go a little bit deeper in some of the scholarship and you start seeing that there's some Hebrew-isms to this, the, the color gets richer and the meaning gets deeper. Um, this is meant to give us to do what poetry is supposed to do. Slow down. What's going on here? I don't understand that. Let me think about that for a bit. What are we doing with that? This, that meaning will actually clearly communicate God's goodness, mercy, love, justice, and faithfulness and the grace of God. Those poetic forms let it lend us to um, help memorize and they help us to help meditate. Um, and so this is a good kind of lead in. We've had a really good lead in all the past spring because what have we had? We've had how to pray from the Lord's Prayer. We've had how to memorize scripture um, that Andrew talked about and last week family worship. So if you need a place to start, start here, start in the Psalms. Uh, it's a perfect place to start. Um, and oh, by the way, it's the very word of God. So anyway, for the next three weeks, if you take a look at your outline, what are we going to be talking about? Uh, next week and for the next two, we're going to be talking about how the Psalms are for us. The next week, we're really going to be focusing on 
kind of um, that they're hard, <laughs> the hard ones, um, the, the ones where there's cursing um, against the enemies of God or the en- enemies of people. Um, and then Psalm, the week three, we're going to talk mostly about there for us in encouragement and repentance. And then week four, the Psalms are for us as a church. So how should we respond to this thing? What do we really care and what do we ought to do about this? Um, James 1.22 says to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So we can't just stay here and go, wow, the Psalms are really cool. We got to do something with this. So uh, I'll leave you with this. Use these things to pray. Use these things to meditate and to worship as a family. Uh, And then it is always right to say, what should we do with this? We should praise the Lord. Uh, And so what I hope to do in the next couple weeks and in here is to show you how deep this is and to give us another look at these things to show you how valuable they are so we'll actually use them. And then how did I get into, what was the gateway drug as it were? I hate to use that phrase, but um, it is a a group called the Corner Room. It's uh, as a worship leader in a small church in Alabama in a little corner room of that small church set these psalms to music. And so I'd like to play for you Psalm 146. I'm going to play that. Uh, and then I will pray, and then we will be dismissed uh, for church here at the bottom of the hour. But before I do that, are there any questions? Because I know I just fire-hosed everybody with a ton of information. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, it was, the, it was God's judgment. God was using them as a judgment on Israel. So if you look at the, um, in First and Second Samuel, uh, God says, hey, for the sin of Manasseh in particular, one of the, the kings, and the kings preceding him, where it says, and so-and-so was the king and did evil in the sight of the Lord, he says, I'm sending you away. And so the Babylon, Babylonians were his instrument of judgment in order to do that, which is why when they went in there and God's presence was already gone, they could come and desecrate the temple. So it was a judgment on the nation. Fantastic question. Others? Yes. Uh, just a quick comment for um, the chiasms I also learned from Dr. Godfrey. Um, Genesis 2, the creation hmm. um, account in Genesis 2 is also a chiasm, which it took me many times of going over before I understood it, but uh, I just thought that was kind of interesting for another way to cross-reference that. Any others? Cool. So this thing's going to be about four minutes long, so I went over. I'm really sorry about that. Uh, but though this song, you can follow along in the text of scripture, it's Psalm 146. There's a musical interlude, though the text doesn't say Selah or Selah. This is kind of what one of those might have sounded like, where it's just stop for a second, listen to the music, and think about what you just heard. Uh, and so here we go. Hopefully it gives us a good, um, another way to look at these things. And uh, by the way, this song's been stuck in my head for the past several weeks, so that's kind of a good thing. Here we go.
Father, praise the Lord, O my soul. You set the prisoners free. You open the eyes of the blind. You lift up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us. And I pray, Father, that we would consider these things, that we'd meditate on these things and be encouraged by them in the power of your spirit. For Christ and for his sake, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> 